0: Today we'll be reading from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. It says, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation. teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, good morning. There's a difference between a spiritual person and a godly person. In the pursuit of spirituality, generally speaking, people are usually looking to find themselves connected to something bigger than themselves. And the way to experience this is usually by discovering revelation within themselves. And this happens through practices such as meditation or restriction, or even by finding themselves among nature. The question, however, that comes up in the pursuit of spirituality, or I should say the questions that come up within the pursuit of spirituality are something like, well, what's the end goal? What is the purpose of spirituality? Is it to be a better version of oneself?" Is it to find meaning or happiness? And what happens when those two things are in conflict with one another? How does spirituality reconcile that? In the pursuit of godliness, however, there is something, in fact, there is someone who is bigger than us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes Himself known through the revelation of His Word and the dwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here, the goal isn't so much a better you, but a new you, a new you that has a new work that was begun by Jesus for you. The pursuit of godliness doesn't ignore the paradox of life. In fact, godliness is what helps us, enables us to live in the tension of those paradoxes by looking to Jesus. And I understand that that's easier said than done. But here's what the two have in common. They both want to be good. Both individuals want to be good individuals. When we look at the text this morning, what we're going to notice is that to be good, and in this case for you and I, a good servant of Jesus, what it means to be good is that it begins with godliness. And Paul unpacks what this looks like for the church. And so here's your main idea. The pursuit of godliness is not one of merit. In other words, one where you're going to earn something. The pursuit of godliness is not one of merit, but worship. And that's what Paul has for us this morning. So let me pray. And if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're looking at verses 6 through 16, closing out this wonderful chapter. Let me pray, and then we'll continue in our time. God, we thank you. We begin by thanking you for this weather. It is a beautiful reminder that your voice is gracious and sweet. May we for a moment give you thanks, for you are good. God, as we examine your word through Paul to Timothy, would you give us a heart to believe so that we would obey you? Would you give us a heart to believe so that we would know Jesus better, so that we would delight in him? God, would you give us a heart to believe so that we would live like Jesus, for this pleases you? God, would you give us a heart to believe so that we may honor you, for this brings you glory. May your word this morning bring about not motivation, but desire, conviction. May we be challenged and compelled to pursue godliness, not as a way of earning your love and acceptance, but because we are already loved and accepted by you through Jesus. Lord, would you strengthen us by your grace? Would you fill us with the sweetness of your word? And would you humble us with the mercy of your goodness? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we go. As we consider the pursuit of godliness, here's what it begins with, and we're going to find ourselves starting off in verses 6 through 10. Godliness, or the pursuit of godliness, begins with conviction. See, conviction is not simply a strongly held belief in something. It is based on a foundation of truth that is unshaken in spite of circumstance. It is refuge for when we are weak and disheartened. It is where we find daily strength for the significant and the mundane. This truth begins with the revelation of God through His Word. This is where we as Christians begin. The source of truth, our foundation, is the Word of God. And so as we consider verse 6, when Paul writes, if you put these things before the brothers, these things refers to the entirety of this letter. Everything that we have covered in the last few weeks and everything that we will, by God's grace, continue to cover in the coming weeks weeks. And he says put these things before the brothers that is put these things everything that I've just written to you put it before the church so that you would know the source of our conviction. Conviction is different than motivation. Motivation is usually about getting your emotions riled up and getting some excitement generated, but the problem with motivation is that it's limited because it doesn't last. Everybody loves the Monday mornings, but no one loves Tuesday afternoons, right? When we stand upon the truth of God's Word as our foundation with conviction, conviction helps to develop discipline. And as we become disciplined, we grow and we mature. We become more and more teachable. And that's what Paul is getting at with Timothy in these verses, If we're going to pursue godliness, then we must be disciplined in our conviction. If the truth of God is our conviction, then we must be disciplined in this area. And the question for you might be, well, how? How do I get disciplined? One of the things I regularly say from the pulpit is that everybody wants to be spiritual, but nobody wants to be godly. And if you're curious as to what it looks like to be godly, that's exactly what Paul is going to unpack in these verses. And so just like any diet or workout program, you and I need to be spiritually nourished, and we also need to do some spiritual training. And so how do we become disciplined? Well, disciplined involves sound teaching. Once more, verse 6, if you put these things, that is, everything that Paul has written before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So how do we be good? Well, it begins with godliness. Well, what does godliness look like? Well, it begins with conviction and discipline. He continues, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. The pursuit of godliness involves discipline through sound teaching. Paul uses two expressions, the words of faith and good doctrine. We can bring these two together, and what Paul is saying is what you first need is sound teaching. You need to be fed with the words of God. You need to be fed with good biblical doctrine. You need good faith food if you're going to grow, if you're going to be disciplined and get strong and make sure that your muscles mature, you need good food. And Jesus is the bread of life, therefore we will feast upon him and his word. That's what Paul is getting at with Timothy. We need sound teaching. Sound teaching involves several things, like biblical exposition. There's a reason we walk through books of the Bible here at Storehouse McAllen. It is not just because it's cool and trendy, but because it is God's Word spoken and revealed to us. We tackle hard subjects. We have to look at context and the author and everything that's going on. When it comes to sound teaching, it's not five points on living a better life. It is looking at what God has spoken. Sound teaching involves learning theology and reading good books, whether you're an auditory listener or learner and you like to listen to audiobooks or you actually have physical copies. The idea here is that you grow in your theology and you read good books. Teaching that you sit under is one that not only stirs your heart and mind, but challenges the will. That's what we're looking for. When we're looking for a, stye, a steady diet, we're looking for teaching that doesn't just stir our hearts and our mind, but one that challenges our will. The pursuit of godliness involves spiritual nourishment or sound teaching, but it also involves spiritual training. Just like any healthy program, it doesn't only include diet and nutrition, but it also involves physical exercise. Well, why does a good program also involve physical exercise? Because stress, positive stress, forces our muscles to grow, to adapt, to uh, take in more food so that we would get stronger and bigger and healthier. Stress helps the body grow. In the same way, spiritual training and exercise forces us to grow, otherwise, we become out of shape. And that's what Paul is getting at, continuing into verse, uh, me, into verse 7. Yeah, he says, having nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. We'll cover that in a minute. Rather, train yourself for godliness. In that verse and in the following verse, he uses this word train. The word training in the original language is where you and I get the word for gymnasium. Paul was a sports fanatic. In the event that you haven't read any of his epistles, he loves sports. And he's constantly applying what he knows about athletics and sports to our walk with Jesus. And ultimately what he's getting at is the same across the board. He's saying there's work to do. You and I need to spiritually train uh, uh, to pursue godliness, but this work is not so that we would earn our salvation. Jesus has already done that for us, but the reason we pursue godliness is so that we would grow in our love and live like Jesus. That is why we train. And so I want you to notice two things in those two little verses. He says, train yourself. And in the verse uh, before that, he says, being trained. One is in the present tense. The other one assumes ongoing training. If you think you've arrived because you read one book of the Bible or a couple of articles online, or you've just sat under a little bit of teaching, you've missed out when Paul uses this language, it's no matter how old you are or how many years you have in walking with the Lord, we never stop learning. The Christian life is a learning life. And what are we training for? We're training for godliness. It's not a random program. When you consider uh, physical trainers and people go into the gym, one of the things that they'll most often tell you is to not just do random things. You've got to go in with intention, with a plan, with a purpose. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He's saying we're not just aimlessly training. We're training for the purpose of pursuing godliness. Not so that we would earn something. Jesus has done that for us. It is so that we would worship Jesus. And so just as much as we need to take care of our body, we need to take care of our soul. Paul references that in verse 8. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It is good to do exercise. You should be doing exercise. You should be eating well. Those are things that we need to pursue, consider, and uh, uh, actually do, right? Like when it comes to lifting, you should lift something heavy all of the time, blah, blah, blah. If you want to learn more about that, we did a series on stewardship at the beginning of the year. There's an entire sermon just on uh, verse 8, Go and check that out. But the idea here is, he's saying, hey, bodily training, when you lift weights, when you eat well, that has value, not just for your physical health, but the thing about bodily training is that it is limited. It's limited. In other words, he makes this distinction between physical and spiritual exercise, that when it comes to physical exercise, you can't take your muscles into the next life. But you can take your godliness. To the Corinthians, Paul says it this way every athlete exercises self control in all things. So what do athletes do? Athletes train. They go through rigorous programs. They restrict themselves. They demonstrate self-control so that they would get better. And the goal is not just to be a better athlete, but ultimately to win the gold medal, the gold trophy, the first place, the wreath, whatever it is. And then he continues in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, they do it to receive a perishable wreath. He says, here's the difference. Athletes are going to train hard. Athletes are going to go for that first place, that gold, uh, that gold trophy, that achievement award, whatever employee of the month thing. They're going to go for it, and you should, but you need to understand right now on this side, that is limited. And he continues, but we, an imperishable wreath. And that is the gift of the Holy Spirit in us. You can pursue gold, but you can't take gold into eternal life. You can take godliness. You can't take your muscles into eternal life, but you can take your maturity. Every successful program consists of diet and exercise, nourishment and stress. And just like Paul says, hey, we need good food, we need sound teaching, he says we need spiritual training. Another word for spiritual training would be spiritual disciplines. This is part of the quote-unquote program. Spiritual disciplines, there's several. I just want to highlight two, prayer and fasting. When it comes to prayer, this has been one of the things that Paul has pushed over the course of our time in this letter. This is communion with God, where we come before God with thanksgiving for all that God has done, all that God is doing. But in addition to that, we come before Him with confession. We would recognize that we are not Him and we're trying to live like Him. We're trying to be Him. But in addition to that, where we bring His requests or our requests to Him. When it comes to fasting, uh, Tony and I were listening to a sermon yesterday, and and the pastor goes on to say that when it comes to fasting in the early church, it was normal but not regular. And I think oftentimes in our 21st century, we're constantly thinking about fasting as like, man, that's all the early church was doing. The early church was always fasting. They never ate. And the idea here is, no, no, they did it regularly. Or excuse me, they did it as something that was normal, but it wasn't always regular. And that's a discipline that you and I ought to cultivate because when you and I fast, it forces us to lean on God and it reveals where our dependency really has been. If you're curious to know where your heart has been, I dare you to fast. So the program consists of spiritual disciplines. It consists of the Sunday gathering. That when it comes to the Sunday gathering, this ought to be the biggest day for the, of the week for you and I. Because this is where we get to tell the story of God. The story and glory of God through Jesus as we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and sit under the preached Word. This ought to be the biggest day for you and I, not in terms of production, but in terms of worship. The program consists of discipleship. This is where you and I find ourselves in community. We find ourselves in community so that we would be known, so that we would be challenged, and in so doing, we would be held accountable. A lot of people like that part. But accountability is what helps us to keep moving forward. In this section, Paul ultimately is unpacking the value of training and exercise and nutrition. When we feed on sound teaching and when we exercise spiritual disciplines, you, the Christian, are able to make the distinction between spirituality and godliness. Back up to verse 7, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. These are beliefs that are pagan in origin and they include superstition. And so ultimately, here's what he means when he says irreverent myths. These are teachings that are completely void of God. And while we may not necessarily have statues of gods and goddesses hanging outside of Main Street, the idea here is that there are teachings that are attractive, They sound good and spiritual because of the experience, because of the way in which they draw you in, but they lack substance and reverence. Jesus is void in those teachings. Now remember, he's talking to false teachers. These are people within the church. Or he's talking about false teachers, people within the church. And so we can kind of zoom out of Storehouse McAllen and zoom out out of this part of McAllen and look at how other churches, maybe some that you even follow online, that have some really good content, but it lacks substance and reverence to God. Jesus is absent in those teachings, but people come out feeling good. In other words, there's no fear of God, and many Christians choose, because they can't tell the difference, between relevance and reverence. Many Christians want relevance. They want the production value. They want certain things to be a certain way. And they want to feel good. They want to be stirred in a certain way. But there's a, 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 an absence of reverence when it comes to the teaching. They're actually not feeding upon sound teaching. Just gancitos, You know what I mean? Like they're just <laughs> eating crap. Good Christians pursue godliness because Christians rely on revelation, not speculation. Godliness is mentioned 15 times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are mentioned in this epistle alone. A steady diet of sound teaching and spiritual disciplines helps to make the distinction between what is spiritual And what is godly what is relevant and what is reverent one commentator says it this way the result of all of this godly training will be a godly life by themselves acts of christian devotion do not guarantee godliness which is a matter of the heart by faith and the holy spirit these spiritual exercises produce spiritual fruit. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But let's conclude with verse 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is about the third time he says that phrase in this letter. And so everything that he has just written about uh, sound teaching and spiritual disciplines, uh, right, training for godliness, everything that he said, he's saying you can bank on this. You can trust in this. That if you do these Things. If you pursue godliness in this way, you will grow. But then he adds a qualifier in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. In other words, what Paul is saying is that as we pursue godliness, you and I need to understand that godliness comes from knowing that all of life is lived before the face of God. That God is at the center of our lives. What we do and how we live and what we say comes out as a result of what we believe about God. King David says it this way in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. When it comes to the pursuit of godliness, and as we talk about discipline, sometimes it could be considered legalism. Like, so you're saying to be disciplined when it comes to, you know, eating good food, sound teaching, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, right? Like, no, it's not legalism. Legalism is what says, hey, you need to do these things so that you would earn God's love. Last week, we looked at this fancy word called asceticism, where they're saying, hey, if you look good on the outside, then you'll be good. What discipline is saying here is the pursuit of godliness, as you and I become disciplined in the pursuit of godliness, it's not because we're trying to earn our salvation, but it's because we are worshiping God so that we would live like Jesus. Discipline involves sound teaching, spiritual disciplines, and trusting in Jesus. That's verse 10. Trusting in Jesus isn't blind faith or wishful thinking. Rather, trusting in Jesus involves looking back at what Jesus has done for you and looking back at His faithfulness for your encouragement. When I was a strength coach, I had this one athlete, and her name was Candace. and Candace was really strong, but oftentimes struggled to make progress in her lifts or her competitive lifts, and so what we did was we developed a program that made much of small victories. So if her footwork got better, we marked it. If she got stronger by one pound, we marked it. If the bar path, just nerd talk, if the bar path was better or her technique was faster or just her speed was a lot, uh, had improved, we would write it down so that when she would come to seasons where she would feel discouraged because she's not getting stronger, we would go back to the program so that she would see all of the work that had happened leading up to that moment. It is so that she would find encouragement in the faithfulness from the past. The same way trusting in Jesus sometimes means being encouraged by looking back at what Jesus has not only accomplished, but by what Jesus has already been doing in your life. The same way happens with athletes who they are on a really restrictive diet. And as they start the diet, they often don't feel as though they're making any kind of progress. And what you do is you stop and you look back at their program so that they would see their progress over the last couple of weeks and months. The same thing applies here. When it comes to trusting in Jesus, Paul adds this qualifier of, we will toil and strive. In other words, there are going to be seasons where it gets really tough. There are going to be seasons that are going to be discouraging. And so trusting in Jesus means looking back at His faithfulness so that we would be encouraged in the present so that we would look ahead to the future. Looking back at Jesus' faithfulness is a reminder that Our hope, and he goes on to say it this way in verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because our hope is set on the living God. In other words, our hope is not set on how strong you and I are, but on how strong and good and gracious our God is. Jesus is the living God. We do not worship or grow or trust in the thought of what Jesus was, but in the alive and well, seated at the right hand of the Father Jesus. That is who we worship. We trust in the riches of His Word, which are living and active. All of that discipline, that sound teaching and the spiritual disciplines, all of that discipline aims to help us to grow in our trust. Not that we are the source of our truth and trust, but Jesus is the source. As we grow in our trust because Jesus is faithful, we grow to hate our sin so that we would live like Jesus more than anything else. Our trust in Him means even though we are unfaithful, He remains faithful to us. And it is exactly His faithfulness that leads you and I to the sharing of the gospel with others. Why? Because Jesus alone is our only hope. He is the only one who will not let us down. He is the only one who will not reject you. He is the only one who will not forsake you. He will not bail on you. In fact, Jesus sits and sympathizes with you as you are weak. This is the news that we not only believe, this is the news that we proclaim. Yesterday we were having these conversations with some friends and we go on to talk about evangelism or just sharing the truth of Jesus. And when it comes to sharing the truth, oftentimes, especially right now, we tend to find common ground in ideologies, political status, social and cultural statuses, like let's build our friendship around that. And once you and I have a good foundation, then I'm going to share Jesus. And when you do that, what happens sometimes the relationship is over. You are rejected and turned away. The goodness of Jesus is one that we proclaim unashamedly. That doesn't mean we do it like jerks. There's no ministry in the church that's like jerks for Jesus, right? Like, there's none of that, okay? Like, we do so lovingly and we do so patiently, but we do so unapologetically, Because if we really are going to be won by the cultural winds of our time, then sharing the unapologetic truth about Jesus as Lord and Savior is going to happen so far down the line. Oh, but we've built these common grounds with one another. No, we've probably compromised. And when Paul continues, <clears throat> he says that living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe... Paul is saying that Jesus has died for all sorts of people. It doesn't matter their ethnicity, it doesn't matter their race, it doesn't matter their social status, it doesn't matter where they're from, it doesn't matter their story, it doesn't matter what they've been through. Jesus saves sinners from all sorts of walks of life. And so when you read the word especially, Paul, I mean, that word especially means to be precise. And so Paul is saying here, who is the Savior of all people, to be precise of those whom believe. That there will be some who reject Jesus. We know this. That there will be some who reject the message of salvation from sin and death that comes by grace through faith in Jesus. But then there will be those who will receive this message and Jesus will save them and Jesus will give them a new heart and Jesus will bestow their grace upon them. This is the message that we not only embrace, but that we proclaim. The pursuit of godliness begins with conviction. Conviction brings discipline, and discipline involves sound teaching, spiritual disciplines, and trusting in Jesus. In the next section, this is verses 11 through 15, we see that godliness bears fruit. Godliness bears fruit. How does godliness do this? Well, godliness has to deal with character we've talked a great deal about character in this series your character is what everyone will see based on what you say you believe and so while character is the formation of our heart godliness is the fruit of that it is what everyone else will see so beginning in verse 11 actually let's go to verse 12 we're going to get to verse 11 in a minute Here's, we could say, the first evidence of fruit as far as godliness goes. Verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. One of the first evidences of, of godliness is a godly example. Timothy was not only timid but he was a young man. He was a young pastor. He was somewhere around his 30s, and Timothy was experiencing the heat. He was getting some heat from these false teachers, from people in the church, and Paul is writing to him because he's saying, hey, you can't bail. You can't walk out on this, right? It's not like Paul is having this kind of conversation like Robert De Niro has with Al Pacino in the movie Heat, and Robert De Niro tells Al Pacino, Right? What what does he say? He goes, uh, "If you feel the heat, don't. You need to be ready to go in 30 seconds." Right? Paul is not saying that to Timothy. He's like, "Hey, you feel the heat? Therefore, I need you to do something here." In other words, you can't, you can't bail. And this is where many, many of us are like, "Oh man, I just, I'm just waiting for him to tell me I could bail." No, man. You're gonna feel the heat, and you're gonna walk towards it. That's what Paul says. And so he brings encouragement and a reminder to Timothy. And so here's what he tells Timothy. He's like, here's how you're going to gain the respect of others, and in particular, those who are older than you. He says, you're not going to gain their respect by being domineering. You're not going to gain their respect by showing off how much you know. You're not going to gain their respect by being a jerk for Jesus. You're going to gain their respect by setting a godly example. This is a wonderful challenge for you and I, especially for those of you who are younger. You see, when you're facing opposition, you may have the temptation and the tendency to defend yourself. To shoot back, to snap back. That's going to be your tendency. And Paul is saying, no, I need you to do something entirely different. I need you to be an example of godliness. They will not despise your youth if they admire your example that's the challenge. And so Paul says, make sure that you are an example to the believers in speech. It's not just what you say, it's how you say it. And your conduct, right? So it's not just about what you believe, it's how you live it out. By the way in which you love others, not just yourself. One of the one of my favorite verses is in 1 Corinthians 16, and it's where Paul says, "Do everything that you do. let everything that you do be done in love." And then there's a period. There's not a comma that says, "So that you would be loved back." <laughs> be an example in your faith. This is not only knowing the gospel, but this is also growing in the words of faith and in sound doctrine. Be an example in purity. Where are your eyes during the day? What are you looking at? Who are you looking at? How are you looking at them? Proverbs 7 writes, That let not your heart turn aside to her ways, This has to do with temptation. Do not stray into her paths for many a victim as she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to shoal, going down to the chambers of death. How do you guard yourself? This isn't just for the men. This is also for the ladies. How do you guard yourself? Who is keeping that check? How do you guard yourself in contexts where you're the only Christian? But let's be honest, nobody really knows. How do you guard yourself? What kind of an example do you set before them? Because here's the thing, spiritual maturity isn't just about facts. See, many Christians, and you might be this individual, you might say you're mature because you know some stuff, because you read half a book and a third of an article, right? You might be that individual that says, man, I'm mature because I know stuff. No, maturity is about how you live, how you live life. You see, sound teaching and spiritual disciplines will be of little worth. They will be of little worth if they do not bear fruit. See, spiritual maturity is not about adopting the slogan, you know what? That's good. That's good, Pastor. But you know, one day, one day I'll pursue holiness. I get it, Pastor. I get it. But you know, one day, one day... I'll take the Bible seriously. No, you're right. I've been thinking about that. That's good. That's a good reminder. One day, I'll turn things around. I just need to experience or do X, Y, and Z. Let me encourage you, right now is when you get serious. Right now is when you start setting an example. See, the Word of life encompasses everything. One philosopher said it this way, it's not that life is short, it's just that we waste so much of it. Take the Lord Jesus, His Word, and your maturity seriously right now. And here's how you spot a Christian who doesn't want to take it seriously. When you talk about these things, right... Uh, the response is, it's two words, ready? I know. When you hold them accountable, when you pursue them, right? That's part of that diet, right? We come together so that we would grow in our godliness. This is where we push one another to bear fruit as the Holy Spirit dwells in us, where we push one another. It's like, man, hey, where are you at in this? Tell me where you're at with the Lord. Hey, have you considered this? What about this? And the answer is, I know. No, which is the Christian way of saying it. If you're new to the faith, welcome to Christianese 101. When you hear, I know, that means shut up. Sure That's what it means. I should say I should mean most of the time. Maybe you're saying it in a good setting, right? But nevertheless when we push one another in our godliness because of what Jesus has done for us, you're like, hey man, where are you at with this? How are you doing here? Hey, let's check on this. You told me about this last week. How are you doing here? And you hear, I know. That's when you know spiritual maturity is what I want it to be. You see, you cannot defend the Christian life until you live the Christian life. And for those of you youngins, I'm still kind of young, anyway, um, who want to be leaders, Maybe you are a leader. Here's what one pastor says. There are too many men who are ministers before they know how to be Christians. So you're like, well, I don't want to be a minister. I don't, want to, I don't want to be a pastor. But you might be a leader. You might be the leader in your home. You might be a leader at work. Take it seriously now. That's the first fruit. The first fruit of godliness is uh, uh, being a godly example. The second one is is Proclamation. Proclamation of God's Word. Here we go. Uh, Paul continues, verse 11, and then we're going to jump down to verse 13. He says, Command and teach these things. These things, everything I've written to you, command these things. Uh, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Right? We'll go through this fairly quickly. Here's the, here's the question. Right. Uh, one of the fruits of godliness is the proclamation of God's Word. So what are your conversations centered around? What is it that you talk the most about? See, whatever it is that you value, that's what has your heart, and whatever has your heart is that that's how you're gonna bear fruit. Now I'm not saying like, like everything needs to be coded with Jesus, right? But if we're in settings where like people don't even know that we're Christians, if we're in settings where like you've never even mentioned the name of Jesus, like right? something's up, right? So Paul says, command these things. It's a reminder of Timothy's authority to the church. It's a reminder of his foundation that's set on the Word of God. But it's also a reminder of his responsibilities to the public reading of Scripture. So we do that here on Sunday, right, where we proclaim God's Word by examining God's Word and preaching God's Word. But it also applies in the context of our daily life. All right, fine. You might not be a pastor, but that doesn't mean you're not proclaiming God's word. Right? Maybe it's to your spouse, maybe it's to your friends, to your kids. Do you pray for your kids? Do you pray with your kids? Like, where are you at with that? You have the responsibility of proclamation. Right? There are some Christians who are worried more about position than proclamation. Well, you got it. There. You got the responsibility. Go and proclaim. He says for exhortation, right? Like the reason we study God's Word, the reason we proclaim God's Word is so that we would encourage one another, persuade one another, and correct one another. And he says teaching. That's the explanation of the Scripture. Jesus does this in the synagogue in the temple in Luke 4. He unpacks the scroll, He reads the verses, and He rolls it back up, and then He goes on to explain what the text means. Teaching is a way of explaining Scripture. So therefore, know your Bibles. Know your Bibles. Know God's Word. Know the basics, the essentials of the gospel so that you can teach them. This comes back to conviction where we stand on the truth of God. See, godliness has a source. You and I are not that source. The third fruit of godliness is the fruit of stewardship with our gifting. This is verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. And so here's what Paul is telling Timothy. He's telling, hey, you have a gift. Don't neglect it. And he mentions this word prophecy. Now, the thing about it is we actually don't know exactly what Paul is talking about here. This could mean that someone spoke this into Timothy's life. This could just be a reference to what he's saying, right? It's a prophecy by the laying of hands on by the elders. In other words, the elders saw that you had a gift. They affirmed you. Therefore, they laid their hands on you, so that you would go and practice this gift. Right? Maybe it was preaching and teaching. Or let's go. Like we see it in you, go for it. Right? Paul commends him in this. But it's interesting that he says it here in First Timothy. Don't neglect the gift you have. He says it in Second Timothy. Uh, fan into flame the gift that you have been given. That's Second Timothy one. So you could tell Timothy was a little. You know, he's a little shy. He's a little gun shy. A little timid. Right? He's like, oh, I know I have this gift, but I don't know what to do. And Paul's like, let's go. Right? like He's pushing them. Right? Don't neglect the gift you have. Here, here's the point. Timothy had a gift, and his role was to steward that gift by using it. And he uses it for two reasons. For himself and his heart and his hearers. Let's go back to verse uh, where were we? Verse 15. He says, practice these things. Everything that Paul's been talking about, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. So he's telling him, hey, this gift that you have of study and preaching and teaching, right, I want you to use this gift so that you would also know God better, so that you would grow and be encouraged. And when he says, I want you to immerse yourself, in other words, I want you to give your life to this. I want you to give your life to this belief. I want you to give your life to what God has revealed. And the other purpose of it is, he says, so that they would see your progress. Remember, he's feeling the heat. And Paul doesn't let Timothy off the hook. He's like, you're going to step further into that heat. And what's the heat? They're going to see your progress. They're going to see you grow. They're going to see you mature. They're going to see you lead. They're going to see you make mistakes. They're going to see you repent. So that they can see your progress. Everyone has a gift. Everyone has at least one gift. The question is, are you squandering it or are you using it? Peter says it this way, as each has received a gift. Huh, he said it there too. Everyone has one. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards Of God's varied grace. He doesn't say, use this gift so that you would become a steward. No, no, no. You are a steward. There, boom. That's part of your identity. You are a steward. You have a gift. Peter continues, whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God applies. Peter says, everybody has a gift. Everybody is a steward. You are a steward of God's grace. So, your gift, you have at least one, and it's in at least the categories of speaking or serving at least. And so if you know your gifts, the question is, are you using your gifts? Are you just squandering them? Are you hiding them? When we hide our gifts, when we pull away from our gifts, when we don't use our gifts, we actually forfeit our growth. We forfeit our maturity. We sabotage our leadership. The church isn't edified. Edified. And if you're like, I actually don't know what my gifts, man, let's talk after service. Let's, let's figure it out. I'm not going to lie. When I first became a Christian, I thought spirit, like, like lifting things were a spiritual gift because that's, I, that's all I knew how to do. So man, if that's where you want to start, we got work, right? And then we'll figure it out afterwards. That'll be the test, right? Nevertheless, if you don't know, come up to me and talk. Let's talk about it. Let's pray about it. Let's see, right? Godliness bears the fruit of spiritual maturity, proclamation and gifting. Finally, verse 16, "The pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of godliness involves keeping watch." Verse 16, I'll read this. Keep a close and let me actually back up. This is the summary of chapter four. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, <clears throat> for by so doing you will save both your hearers, yourself, and your hearers. Paul is saying the pursuit of godliness is of little value if we're not vigilant, if we're not watchful, if we're not aware. And so here, under this category, that is keep watch, he gives us three commands. The first one is, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. In other words, watch your life and watch your doctrine. Why? Why? Because sin never sleeps. Satan is always lurking. False teachers are always distorting. Keep a close watch on what you listen to, what you read, and how you live. The second thing that Paul says is persist in this. In other words, the word for persist is persevere. Christian, it will get tough, and there will be moments. It will be difficult, and there will be moments where your faith will grow weak. There will be moments where your faith will shake a little because of circumstances, because of discouragement, or because of distancing as a result of living in sin. Let's not just be like, oh, it's because of these other things. Let's be straight up. And in my experience, it's that third one that we waver because of unrepentant sin. Moving forward, Paul's saying, stand on the truth, persist in this, stand on the truth, return and guard your conviction. Perseverance is the evidence of salvation, not the merit of salvation. And so, man, how how do we persevere? Do not isolate. I can't stress that. Don't isolate. Get in community. That's vulnerable. Yes, but here's the thing. Like Satan feeds on lone Christians. Like he digs that. He loves that. Do not isolate. You're like, no, i got really good friends. No, 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 listen to me. Do not isolate from uh, one another in, in Christian community. If you're hanging out even with good friends and they're giving you good advice but not good news, you're isolated. That's how we're going to persevere. That's how we will persist in this, precisely because it will get hard. And then finally, he says, persist in these things, you're going to be able to save both yourself and your hearers. Here's what Paul means, right? It's not that like Timothy saves. Here's what he means. He's saying, sound teaching can mean the difference between life and death. It's not that Timothy saves, it is that God saves. But he uses people like Timothy to proclaim his work for encouragement, for nourishment, and the need to persevere. God uses the church so that we would edify one another, so that we would persevere. Why? What's at stake? Eternal life is at stake. Eternal life is at stake. So so if you hear anything, Christian, hear that. Keep a close watch on yourself Keep a close watch on your life and your doctrine. Godliness involves keeping watch through vigilance, perseverance, and encouragement. Well, if you haven't gotten it, the ultimate difference between spirituality and godliness is, in a word, Jesus. At the center of godliness is not connectivity to experience, creation, or imagination, but a person, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is at the center of godliness because Jesus is the hero of redemptive history, not us. We pursue godliness because Jesus is the perfect example of godliness, and Jesus is the ultimate source of power for godliness. Jesus is the all-sufficient Savior who entered into our mess, bore responsibility for our sin, and died on a cross in our place, paying the debt of our sin with His credit." He died and was buried, and when we thought it was all over, at that sin and Satan and death had won, Jesus rose from the dead through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that dwells in you and I and helps us, guides us, empowers and equips us. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conquered sin, Satan, and death. And as Jesus has called you to himself, it's not for the purpose of simply bettering yourself, but a new version of yourself, a redemptive version of yourself of who you were created to be. What was distorted has now been restored through reconciliation. Therefore, may God change us from the inside out to the picture of godliness who is Jesus himself. So as we close, Christian, are you godly or are you spiritual? I promise you, whatever has your heart is what you give yourself to. My prayer is that it would be Jesus. I know that you've stumbled this morning. I know that you've stumbled this week because I've stumbled a lot this week. I know that you feel unworthy because I often feel unworthy. And this is the point of grace. This grace that is poured out to you has to deal with you because of Jesus' love for you. So sit in that grace. Turn to the Lord Jesus. Turn away from sin and pursue godliness. Not because you're trying to earn something, but because God has earned it for you in Jesus. Therefore, all we have to do is worship. And if you're not a believer, whether you claim to be spiritual or not, You stand outside of the saving grace of Jesus. You stand not as a spiritually good person, but as a condemned one. However, God has made a way for you to go from condemnation to justification through faith in Jesus. So let me encourage you to confess your sin, to turn from your sin, and to trust in Jesus This text was no coincidence for us. As we close our chapter here at the McAllen Incubator, we close our time this morning by praising the Lord Jesus for all that He has allowed us to see and participate in over the last five years. In this text, Jesus reminds us of sound teaching and the proclamation of His Word. And over the last five and a half years, without hindrance... We have preached the gospel of Jesus Christ here at the incubator and the Old Church Winery in a variety of ways. First off, through many books of the Bible, such as 1 Timothy, Ecclesiastes, Galatians, Song of Songs, and many more. We have received the honor and privilege of preaching through topical series such as the Apostles' Creed, Revival, and the Beatitudes. And that that's not enough, the fruit of such seasons has allowed us to see people come to faith in Jesus with over 25 baptisms at Storehouse, the teaching of theology classes, and the application of theology in our everyday life, whether it's marriage, finances, kids, and discipleship. Through the life of our church, we were given moments and opportunities To serve our community through a variety of events, such as Trunk or Treat, the Art Walk, the annual Irish Festival, and a toy drive at Wilson Elementary. The Lord has been faithful and good to our church here at the Incubator. Over the last five and a half years, we put the eggs in the basket of what we call Ash Wednesday and Holy Week. And as we looked back and started collecting the numbers, over 1,200 people in attendance through those seasons getting to hear the gospel preached and proclaimed, and that does not include 2020. The Lord has been good. And while after this week, the location of our Sunday gathering will be different. The mission will not be. We will continue to make disciples of Jesus through the proclamation of His Word, life and community, and by equipping the saints for the work of ministry. May God be glorified in this next chapter of our church family. And we praise God for the incubator and our time here. Church, a good servant of Jesus Christ begins with godliness. And the pursuit of godliness is not for merit, but worship. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time, both uh, in service and in season, we give thanks to You. We praise You for your work, your faithfulness, your certainty. God, earlier in the sermon, uh, we examined looking back, trusting in Jesus by looking back at your faithfulness. And so for a moment, for a moment, may we look back at your faithfulness here at the incubator. Seeing new believers baptized. Seeing hands raised in worship. Seeing the light bulb click when it came to the gospel. Making friends with our our neighbors and then seeing them here learning and eventually worshiping you. And God, those are just some of the things that we remember and that we remember seeing that is excluding all of your work, all of your providential work behind the scenes. God, as we close, and as we pursue godliness, may we remember that it is not because we're trying to earn something. It is that Jesus has done that for us. But the pursuit of godliness is really just us worshiping Jesus, loving Him more, and living like Him. And so God, would You give us grace in the pursuit of godliness? Would You give us strength? Would You humble us? And as we walk into this new season of life, may we walk in there, may we walk into this new season pursuing godliness for Your glory and our good. May our thanksgiving this morning bring you glory and may it conform us further into the image of Jesus. Give us a clear conscience, Lord, so that we would see Jesus clearly in our devotion, our confession, and our worship. May the words of our lips and the meditation of our heart be pleasing to you this morning. Amen.